0: Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. My name is Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose a noteworthy new book on some corner of the world of sports, and we interview the author. In this week's podcast, we are looking at the recent history of the National Football League and the rise to its current position as the most popular and richest sports league in America. Our guest is Michael Oriard, Distinguished Professor of American Literature and Culture at Oregon State University, and the author of several books on the history of professional and college football. Today we are discussing his book, Brand NFL, Making and Selling America's Favorite Sport, published by the University of North Carolina Press. The invitation to Michael to appear on the program was quite deliberate in light of the current labor situation in the NFL. Michael was not only an NFL player in the early 70s, but he was also involved in the first NFL player strike in 1974. His interest in the league's history of labor problems is apparent throughout the book and in the interview, and he admits that he is not an unbiased observer. He has a strong opinion on the 2011 lockout, which showed no sign of ending at the time of our conversation. But he also brings the perspective of a careful scholar and an insightful analyst as well as that of a veteran of the NFL. Our conversation moved to a number of other subjects, which shows just how pervasive the NFL's influence is in contemporary America. We talk about the symbolic figures of Vince Lombardi and Joe Namath, the 1980s as a time of spectacular teams, but also scandals that threatened to pull down the league, and the deeper reasons for football's great popularity, And we end the interview on an uneasy note, as Michael discusses the recent evidence showing brain injuries in former football players, and the serious obstacle that this poses to the future of the league. As a football fan, I learned a lot from Michael's book, and from our interview. And at the same time, there was much that I found unsettling. So let's turn to the interview. Michael, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Bruce. I appreciate the invitation.
0: So I want to talk first about your background. You're uh, uniquely qualified to write a book about the NFL. Uh, You're a distinguished professor of American literature and culture and an academic dean at Oregon State University. But there are probably not too many academic deans and distinguished professors that have the line on their CV that says former NFL player.
1: Yeah, I, th- there's a few of us, you know, with PhDs out there in academia, but not too many. It, it, it is unusual.
0: So can you tell us how you went from being a, a football player to a scholar of football?
1: Well, you know, for my generation, it, it, it's not as remarkable as it would be today, frankly. Uh, I'm 63 years old. I graduated from high school in 1966, from college in 1970. In that era, you know, before ESPN and, and all of that business, uh You know, sport was not an all-consuming activity. So, you know, one could be serious about trying to be a good athlete at the same time not having it be the only thing he was serious about. So, also too, for me, um, I was sort of doubly blessed. Ironically, it didn't seem that way at the time, but I was a walk-on at Notre Dame. Uh, So, I went to college as as a scholar, as a student uh, who. Happened to play football. Wanted to play football. Football worked out wonderfully well for me. I had a more or less fairy tale kind of experience at Notre Dame, but football never replaced or displaced uh, my academics as as my primary goal. So. Uh, f- After college, when I went on to the NFL, after being drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs, it was a kind of happy accident that kept happening. Uh, I was also going on to graduate school at Stanford, and I was a graduate student who played football rather than a football player, you know, who happened to go to school. So uh, it was more possible, I think, to maintain this kind of balance in my life and the set of priorities in my generation than it would be today.
0: So, I was going to ask i'm actually from Minnesota, so the example I know from from your era is Alan Page, who was going through law school at the same time he was a player, so is that uh, Was it somewhat common that you would have uh, players who are also uh, studying at the same time you know on the side after practice i you know i wouldn't say it was common
1: but 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 it was not altogether remarkable you know i I'm, I'm guessing every team had a couple players you know I, I think maybe Alan went to law school after retiring from the NFL. I'm not sure of that. Uh, but clearly had his his, his you know his goal set on that all along. I had a teammate actually from the University of Minnesota, a guy named Bob Stein, who was a middle linebacker, who I believe actually started law school while he was still with the Chiefs and then became an attorney afterwards. Uh, you know, guys who played in my era, uh, some of them are medical doctors, lawyers, and so on. I mean, academia is a little bit unusual. Uh, you know, you don't have a tendency to to meld the NFL football with, with uh, you know, reading poetry and, and novels and so on. Uh, and also, too, you know, academia does not pay nearly so well as law and medicine. Uh, so so the academic orientation was a little bit unusual. But professional school, yeah, um, you know, like I say, maybe a couple, three players from each team at any given time would probably be doing such, something like that.
0: Okay, okay. So your previous scholarly work, you have actually melded uh, football with, with reading poetry or reading literature um you've looked at sports and particularly football in american literature and in cultural history uh but this book is somewhat different and i am familiar with your older books on on uh football in american cultural history this book is somewhat different in that the central thread is it's something like corporate history the the development and the selling of a product of a brand as you call the nfl so how did you come upon the idea for this particular book
1: Well, you know, actually for a long time, because I was a professor professor of American literature, I I wanted to prove to myself and to, you know, my discipline, if anybody was paying attention, that I could write about things other than sports. Uh, And about halfway through my career, I got over that defensiveness and started these books, you know, like you say, the cultural history of football from the 1880s on. And after having finished a couple of those, taking the story up through the 1950s, I had waiting to be addressed uh the modern era from the 60s on the era when in fact i was playing and then you know observing not just researching you know in the past and uh you know i didn't want to come to the to the modern era of of football with you know a sort of preconceived model of how to address it i wanted to sort of come to terms with what seemed to me most important and you know the most striking change in football from the time when I first was playing in the sixties till the you know, the time when I was writing was the tremendous growth of of revenues and, you know, the televising of games and going from the game of the week to, you know, several games a day and all of that sort of business. So the economics of the sport, which had been, you know, part of the backdrop all along, suddenly had to be, you know, a much more uh, central part of the story. So it was, it was what I saw in football that dictated what I was going to write about rather than some kind of preconceived notions on my part, what, what interested me.
0: Mm-hmm. So in looking at, at the NFL in the modern era, uh, and turning to the book, the origins of the NFL date back to the 1920s, but you start your book in 1960. Why is 1960 important in looking at the, the NFL as a successful brand?
1: Well, you know, I I was completing the cultural history of football that I had started, you know, back in the 1870s, 1880s, and had taken up through the 50s. So I had the 60s on yet to go. But that turned out to be rather convenient, because in the 1950s, which I addressed in a previous book... the professional football for the very first time began to acquire a larger audience and a, and, a, and a truly national audience through television that hadn't been possible before television because only those uh, cities that actually had teams cared at all about professional football. So, you know, I'd ended my, my my account of professional football in the 50s with it on the verge of becoming, you know, the major sport that, that we all know it to be. And so in picking up the story in the 1960s, I, I was picking it up at that turning point, And I sort of go along with everybody else in identifying that 1958 championship game between the Giants and the Colts that ended in sudden death overtime as, as at least symbolically uh, the important turning point. So to deal with, with the modern NFL, you know, that was the starting point and it worked out conveniently that that was where I had to pick up the story.
0: And then a coincidence is that in 1960, Pete Rosell becomes the NFL commissioner, and he, he plays an important part in your book and an important part in the development of the NFL.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also the American Football League uh, starts up in rivalry and so all of the forces that 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 sh- that shaped the NFL over the next several decades really began at that point. You know, Pete Rozelle was was a, a really crucial figure. Uh his predecessor, uh Burt Bell is is often overlooked. You know, many of the things that that Rozelle did were in fact continuations of of Burt Bell's policies. But but Roselle, you know, seized on these ideas and, and pushed them forward. And also he was a, he was a particular genius at public relations and, you know, and recognizing that, that professional football, you know, was a brand, was a, you know, uh, entertainment in, in a marketplace of other entertainment, not just a sport. Uh, so Roselle was, didn't invent, you know, the modern NFL. He, he carried on some of the traditions and legacies from Burt Bell, but, but he presided over the spectacular growth of the NFL in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm.
0: And so another f- figure you address in looking at the rise of the NFL in the 1960s and into the 70s is Ed Sable who just this year was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And I imagine from your book that you would agree with, with his election to the Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, you know, I've, as a former player, I've always felt it sort of strange that non-players are in the NFL. But if you're going to let in owners and and people like that, uh, you really need to let in Ed Sable. Because in terms of of the the power of the NFL, of professional football, NFL football, in in our society, in our culture. Uh, you know, Ed Sable did more than than the owner of any franchise uh, or the, certainly the owners of most franchises and, and even more than, you know, many coaches that are in the Hall of Fame because, uh, you know, he created uh, a particular... You know, image and presentation of professional football that greatly enhanced its 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 power in the culture. I think. I, you know, he he was really a mythologizer. I, I I describe NFL films in the book as sort of the epic poet of the National Football League, and all of those gorgeous slow motion uh, montages of of players colliding and. Passes spiraling downfield and so on. Um, you know, took what was in the game itself. Uh, you know, its beauty and violence and the tension between the two, and then exalted them and exaggerated them in, in, in really wonderful ways. You know, you know, as somebody who likes films and uh, uh, visual representations, anyway, I, I, I just find you know the productions of NFL films to be spectacularly, wonderfully successful and. Ed sable you know was responsible for starting that and I, I really do think that the impact on on professional football and fans relation to football was, was powerfully affected by by the company that he started with by NFL films
0: yeah I would agree as somebody who uh, grew up on NFL films from the blooper the bloopers films to uh, the films that were packaged each each team's story uh, which I remember watching at a Uh, a father-son dinner at a church that we finished the dinner and then we all went upstairs and we watched... uh one of the NFL film stories of, of the past season, and the idea that when fathers get together with their sons, they watch this this epic retelling of the last season on on film. So I still have the, the narration and the images that you describe uh, in my mind, that's what shaped my view of, of professional football.
1: Yeah, and you probably still hear John Facenda's voice. Exactly. You know, the voice of God, you know, intoning these, these wonderful
0: lines and yeah. so on. Yeah. So uh, two other figures who are important in the history of the NFL in the 1960s uh, were actually on the field, Vince Lombardi and Joe Namath. So can you talk about the importance of Lombardi, the coach, and Namath, the quarterback for the rise of the NFL?
1: Yeah, you know, in a way I I, I use them in the book as as sort of symbolic figures, but but in in actual fact they they played these roles as well. Lombardi really embodied – sort of old-school traditional football, smash-mouth football, you know, traditional values, discipline, self-sacrifice, and so on. And, you know, this was, you know, you might say the prevailing ethos, not just in football, but in the country in some ways, you know, following World War Two through the 50s and into the 60s. And you know, Lombardi really transcended the football field. He became a cultural icon. He became a a, a really powerful uh, spokesman for an image of the, you know, the traditional American way of life that seemed to be coming under attack uh, in the 1960s with the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and so on. You know, the kind of, you know, football as a kind of conservative force in in the society i mean that's actually a distortion an oversimplification of lombardi himself i mean lombardi for example was quite racially enlightened quite enlightened about uh, you know gender and sexuality um you know you know he he was not homophobic uh he had oh shoot this is terrible that i'm not certainly remembering, but I think it was a brother who was gay um, or a close relative. This is terrible that I can't remember for certain. But anyway, you know, on, on some of the issues of the day, he was quite liberal, uh, but you know, he represented these old-fashioned values, and you know, you know he became, you know, one of the NFL's first corporate spokesmen, and you know, you know, did training. Uh, mentoring of, of, of uh, uh, you know, business leaders and that sort of thing. So you, he was really associated with and embodied the values of of, of old uh, old school America, traditional America and so on. Joe Namath, when he comes along, is this long-haired, Mustached, uh, white, white-shoed, white-white-shoed, um, llama-skin coat-wearing—you know, Playboy—you uh, uh, know—he—he he embodied sort of the the hippie countercultural ethos without really being a, a hippie or a countercultural figure. I mean, he was a working-class guy from Western Pennsylvania um, who who was a really extraordinary football player, but but he embodied the you know the kind of of, um, you know hedonism and narcissism of the youth generation of the time and so you know even even at the time you know he was seen as kind of the anti lombardia there and and when the jets upset the baltimore colts in the third super bowl and you yeah, it not only you know proved the parity of the american football league against the national football league but but it created a uh, an icon of football success utterly different from those that preceded it you know the values embodied by lombardi were not the values embodied by Namath. you know self discipline and sacrifice of the self for the team and you know, the kind of faceless devotion to, to you know, winning games and so on. That wasn't Namath, you know. He he was out there, you know, spectacularly uh, hedonistic, you know. His reputation with the women and all that sort of stuff was as much a part of his image at the time as, as his football prowess. So uh, I, in some ways, Namath, you know, sort of signifies the, the the future of the National Football League, you know, embracing its role in entertainment, uh, you know, players, uh, you know, promoting themselves and not just, you know, you know, dissolving their personalities into the team. Uh, You know, Namath was also very different from John Unitas, you know, with his black high tops and his crew cut and very different from Bobby Lane, you know, with his kind of working class, you know, uh, um, images and so on. Uh, But I think Namath was a crucial figure for the NFL. You know, Lombardi's Packers dominated the 60s and, and, you know, really fed the NFL's popularity. But through Namath, my guess is that the NFL acquired a lot of fans in that younger generation, maybe put off by, you know, the old-fashioned values. Uh, So, you know, Namath was seen as a rebel initially and as a kind of challenged NFL authority and all that sort of thing. But I think Roselle understood that in in Namath, you know, he had – you know, an important part uh, of the NFL's appeal for the younger generation and for the future. So, uh, Namath became embraced by the NFL and absorbed by the NFL and helped carry it into the seventies with Monday night football and all the rest.
0: Mm-hmm. And so that, uh, talking of Lombardi and, and Namath is symbolic figures and looking at the league today, the, uh, What they symbolized, you still see that tension between the player as celebrity, the player as rebel, and uh, the emphasis on the team and discipline and order within the NFL.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's something you know, sort of profoundly anti-modern about football. You know, it harks back to a kind of more, even primitive sort of uh, struggle and all that. At the same time, it's it's hugely modern, you know, and technologically advanced and and all of that. Uh, and the individual and team, you know, are part of a, a fundamental tension there. So, yeah. I, I the, the, the values embodied in, in Namath and Lombardi are sort of the perennial values of, of football intention, and you know, they, yeah, they do play out today.
0: So turning to football in the 1970s, which was the time you were a player, one of the serious issues that you discuss, discuss in the book was the relationship between labor, the players, and the team owners. So what were the principal issues that affected labor relations in the NFL in the 1970s?
1: Yeah, you know, on these matters, I I am very definitely uh, a a player, a former player, and I, I, you know, my my prejudices are entirely shaped by that. Um, I I think a lot of young fans today particularly, you know, would be shocked, semi-shocked to to know what it was like back in the early 70s when I was playing. But... uh, the relationship between players and clubs was entirely one-sided in those years. You know, when you came out of college, you signed what usually the press would call a three-year contract, but they were really three one-year contracts that bound you for those three years to the club, plus an option year in beyond that, but but didn't bind the club in any kind of, of reciprocal way. You had absolutely no freedom to, 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 move. I mean, at the end of your first one-year contract, you couldn't go off and sell your services to another team. Um, uh, you, you had your second year, and then your third year, and then your option year. Uh, you know, we, we now have free agency, but that's only since 1993 in the form we have it today. And there was no form of free agency back then, because even though technically, you could play out your option after those three years, if, in fact, you signed with another club, uh, what was known as the Roselle rule kicked in, which gave Pete Roselle absolute authority to compensate the club that lost you with players or draft choices from the club that signed you. And in a couple of, of cases, he, he made that compensation just so punitive, so extreme, that it sent a clear signal to to the clubs don't you dare sign free agents now you know it was it was the the big name players the stars you know who would of course warrant the the most compensation you know and marginal players you know like myself I mean I was a backup offensive lineman and special teams player you know the, you know no club is going to lose an enormous amount uh, to get me but but also no club is going to gain an enormous amount to get me so the the players that had the most market value were the ones who were the riskiest uh, players to sign as free agents so the, the the net result was there simply was no free agency and you know that was part of a kind of larger Broader arrangement in which players had their very, very few basic rights that workers had, uh, you know, medical care and you know if you were injured you know the club would pay for your salary the rest of that season and then had no obligation beyond that and so on and so on so in in 1974 uh, when we had the first real work stoppage uh, the issue the issues you know at the heart of the strike were were really these freedom issues as they were known at the time and as we thought of them but The owners were so much more successful than the players in in shaping the, the public perception of what was going on. Um, you know, the Players Association was not nearly so well organized, not nearly as strong. And the owners, you know, have always had, you know, closer relationships with the media, with sports writers and so on. So, you know, it kind of played out in the newspapers as greedy players demanding more, you know. And, and as today, the owners, of course, would not open up their books and, you know, reveal exactly how much they were making. You know, the salaries we were making at that time Sound paltry today. You know, we're talking 1974, an average salary of about thirty thousand dollars. You know, my, the the highest salary on, on my club, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs, was a quarterback, Len Dawson, and he was making you know a little over a hundred thousand, maybe somewhere around a hundred thousand. But you know, thirty thousand dollars in 1974 was you know maybe twice what a what a union truck driver made and so on. It was, it was in kind of the scale of normal wages, but it was, it was still a lot of money. And there's always, there was this attitude. Well, these are just football players after all, you know, they're getting paid to pay a game. And so they're being greedy and all that. So the, the, the strike in 1974 of which was confined to training camp, it it didn't spill over into the, into the season. And, you know, was the first of three major, um, uh, you know, labor work stoppages. The next ones in '82 and '87, before uh, the, the labor piece was finally achieved in 1993, that that then enabled the National Football League and everybody involved, players and owners alike, to thrive as in unprecedented kinds of ways. Uh, and and it makes the the current work stoppage labor dispute just. So bizarre to me, so unthinkable. I mean, I can't understand how the owners can put at risk this tremendous, uh, you know, economic engine that, that, that's that's that been out there since 1993. Um, but, uh, you know, there it is. There it
0: is. Mm-hmm. I actually wanted to ask you about the current uh, work stop, which is the lockout by the, uh, the NFL owners. And, and you mentioned this, this narrative, which was really a constant with all of the uh, labor disagreements through the 70s and into the 80s, in which the media and the fans turned against the players. And in following the, the current labor problems, do you see that continuing, or have you seen a change in the narrative?
1: No, no I think there is a change. And, and, and there was... There was a, a, a beginning of a change in, in 87 in 1987 uh when uh, you know nfl teams signed these replacement players or scab ball as you know it was sort of deridedly described uh you, you know the in in general there i think a, a majority of the sports writers in nfl cities were now siding with the players with a you know a, a Significant minority still on the owner's side. I my sense today, and it's harder to have a sense today because you know you can't just kind of track the newspaper in 32 NFL cities. There's the whole world of the internet and its blog sites and all that sort of thing, and so many commentators out there. But it's my sense that that there there's an overwhelming majority of folks in the media. Uh, that are on the player side here and and find, you know, for the first time ever it's the owners who are being cast as the greedy ones and not the players. The players don't want more. They want to keep what they have and the owners without describing, you know, any kind of, financial hardship in a credible way by by opening up their books and so on or, or insisting that they need a bigger share of, of the shared revenues. And and so I think the media out there is more on the player side. Um, I, I, I don't know about fans generally. You know, during my strike in, in nineteen seventy four uh, a couple polls of fans were, were the results were published that showed overwhelming majority on the side of of the owners. But those were unscientific polls, uh, and, you know, the eighty eight percent or whatever it was that supposedly were on the owner's side turned out to be a complete falsehood that, you know, some uh, reliable poll, a Harris poll or, or something of that sort actually showed that there was a slight majority on the player's side. Uh, but it didn't feel that way at the time. Um, I think today th- there's a little bit of that, you know, a pox on both your houses or, sort of, you know, the millionaires uh, fighting with the billionaires. But my sense is that in general, the owners are seen as the ones who are driving this dispute, not the players and the owners who are the ones that are greedy, not the players. Um, But fans never like players, you know, presenting themselves as, you know, as workers, you know, struggling for workers' rights. And, you know, in 1974, the average salary is $30,000. And we couldn't, you know, convince the public that that we were just trying to get the same kinds of rights that they all had. Now, today, when the average salary is close to two million dollars, I mean, that's a harder sell. But you know, it's it's hard to get the temperature of something so vast as the you know the NFL football public today. Uh, but but I think things have shifted. The other thing that is crucially different today, and that is that is really heartening to me, is. I love it that the the, the named uh, litigants in in the lawsuit filed on behalf of the players includes Peyton Manning, mm-hmm. Tom Brady, and Drew Brees. Mm-hmm. You know, to have to have your premier players, you know, standing, you know, alongside in solidarity with with guys like me, you know, the the, the marginal players and so on, is so crucial for the for the. NFLPA you know it, I was an outsider of course in 1982 and 1987 but you know I saw the same thing happen in it in those labor disputes that had happened in mine in 1974 when you know too many players crossed the picket lines or spoke out against the union. Uh, you know, the the, the the baseball's union, you know, the, the stars and the journeymen, you know, mm-hmm. were, were unified together 100%, you know, behind the union. And, and for some reason, the, the NFL, you know, the football players union could not gain, maintain that kind of solidarity. And there was conspicuous, abandonment of the strike or crossing picket lines by star players and once that happened then it was just a matter of erosion and attrition till the whole thing would collapse so so I I, I see more solidarity today uh, with the players than has ever been there before and I just hope that that continues if it continues it keeps the pressure on the owners and they'll come to their senses and realize that they they don't want to destroy this thing that everybody benefits from um but the longer this drags on the more pressure there will be on the players uh, you know I, I don't know exactly how their salaries are are uh structured so that you know how much money they're not getting paid now that they're accustomed to getting paid and all that sort of business but you know nfl careers are still short mm-hmm. and in my day you know the money's enormously greater but that means you have that much more to lose over the short time of your career uh you know the, the stars you know will will still be stars when they come back but they're sacrificing enormous amounts uh, so i'm i'm you know above all things with with this player dispute i'm just hoping you know that the players will will, will stay together um you know will not abandon each other and will hang tough you know obviously i hope they also you know get a fair settlement out of all of this but but it's sort of emotionally important to me or psychologically yeah emotionally important to me to see the players stand solid you know as a union this time Mm
0: -hmm. so i want to turn to the 1980s so i'm in my early 40s this is the the period of nfl history that i remember best and and this was the time of course of joe montana jerry rice walter payton lawrence taylor dan marino eric oriel and you make the remark in your book that the nfl became a more spectacular show in the 1980s but you also paint a much darker picture of the league in the 1980s that this was a time of crisis can you can you talk about that
1: yeah, well, you know, the by by, by the nineteen eighties, um, uh, the NFL is becoming the sort of cultural entertainment juggernaut that that we're accustomed to. I mean, it it, it fully came in, into that in the nineties, but it was already happening in the eighties. Uh, you know, Monday Night Football had created this primetime audience for for professional football for the first time, and you know, it it, it obviously expanded the the Fan base to include not just you know diehard fans, you know predominantly male, but you know women and you know the broader public and so on. Um, you know cable. Television didn't have its full impact on the NFL till till the end of the decade. You know, 1987 is a is a really key date there when ESPN first gets its first uh, NFL contract and starts showing games. Uh, but but ESPN through SportsCenter is beginning to become a presence and so on. Um, so you know there's more and more money you know predominantly from from television um you know the the game is being marketed more and more uh so the the, the forces that you know keep playing out you know were were well in place in the 80s but but the 80s was also the period when uh drug problems first became uh, a, a real uh you know, public issue, you know, there's always been drugs in sports, you know, in, in my era, uh, the, the drug of choice was, was amphetamine, you know, speed. And, you know, I, I, I don't for for somebody as as intimately involved with football as I, you know, the the issue about which maybe I am least knowledgeable is drugs, because I never did them myself. And, you know, they were they were banned at the time. And so I never you know, I never saw I never saw a teammate. Put a little red pill in his mouth and, and wash it down with a with a gl- cup of water. Uh, so exactly how common you know drugs were in my era, I, I really really don't know. But except for a, a, you know sort of a brief public scandal with the San Diego Chargers around 1973-74, uh, you know drugs were kind of you know one of the dark secrets of of, of professional sports. But in the 1980s that became a public issue and you know this was the era of cocaine you know becoming you know the yuppie drug of choice and marijuana you know continuing from the 60s and 70s as kind of the hippie kind of cultural drug of choice and, you know, steroids just, you know, sort of beginning to be, you know, to be a presence, not not too much yet. It, it, it was really the, the era of, of scandals over cocaine, number one, and, and marijuana, number two. So there, there was this series of arrests of players and revelations by players of drug use and so on. It was also the era when um, Al Davis, the owner of the Oakland Raiders, uh, defied you know, everything that the NFL stood for and took the Raiders off to California, to, to Los Angeles, because he felt he could make a whole lot more money down there. And so that, that and the lawsuit that followed that, that validated his right to do that, you know, created this disruption within the NFL and and you know franchise instability and, and clubs started moving and communities started feeling blackmailed and extorted by by the owners of their clubs uh, so so it was a time of of um, you know sort of structural upheaval you know, for the NFL and uh, to some degree, image crisis for the NFL. You know, the, the, these drug scandals were not good for the image of f- football players as as role models and all of that sort of business. Uh, you know, a really good journalist at the end of the decade wrote a book about you know the I think the subtitle was something like the re- the rise and decline of of the National Football League. You know, with the idea that you know maybe maybe. F- you know, it was going to implode or explode, and and you know things were just unraveling. And then um, when when Pete Rosell finally resigned, and, and it, it just seemed that that you know the the league was beyond his control. You know, Frank Deford, who is one of the you know sort of the most generous-minded sports writers around, wrote a profile of, of Rosell sometime in the late 80s in, in Sports Illustrated, where he, he, in fact, openly said something like, it, it appears that, that Roselle has lost control of the league. And then Paul Tagliabue came in and, you know, within... Just a couple of years achieved labor peace with with working with Gene Upshaw, you know franchise stability, expansion, everything that that, that happened in the nineteen eight nineteen nineties and into the twenty first century, and and the NFL thrived as never before. So that sense of 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 crisis or urgency was clearly overstated or uh, or. At, at least temporary because the, the nfl has you know thrived over the last you know 20 odd years in ways that it never thrived before
0: yeah and i would say it was quickly forgotten because when i i read that chapter of your book i thought oh yeah that's right i remember reading about these scandals and these crises but as i said i don't remember that when i think of of the 1980s i think of the the 49ers
1: yeah, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes too, I wonder, you know, how much all these these scandals and and you know these ugly headlines and so on really register with fans. I mean, you know, as fans, we really don't want to have to deal with stuff like that. You know, you know, we we want our football teams to to win on Saturday or Sunday or Monday night, whenever it is, and we want our players to you know to do well and all that sort of stuff. And 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 when the when the ugly revelations come, I wonder if if you know if we sort of compartmentalize that stuff. Oh yeah, you know, I I understand that this is a part of it, but you know, but 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 my Colts are going to win on Sunday, you know, and you know, Peyton Manning is going to have a great day and and so uh, you know, I I I was writing about a period that I also lived through, but you know, I my my the focus in my life was was really not on, you know, professional football. I wasn't watching you know, many games in those days. I was raising kids and teaching classes and, you know, doing my work at the university and so on. And, you know, always followed sports, you know, to some degree in football, to some degree but you know as a former player the, the sport itself becomes more or less kind of demystified and so you know i wasn't glued to the set on sundays and all that so uh, you know and going back i was sort of reminding myself too oh yeah <laughs> all that stuff happened you know you know it's amazing all that stuff happened you know i didn't have a sense of the time of you know pete rosell losing maybe losing control of the league or being rudderless or directionless or whatever. Um, so, but, but, but it was all there, you know, and I, and I bet it really felt there for, for people at the NFL, you know, and, and, you know, running the franchises, you know, the sense of, you know, you know, every time one of your players got arrested and you had to go out and do, uh, PR, uh, Management, you know, to try to get through this, it must have felt crisis-like, you know, in NFL headquarters and in in uh, you know the owner suites uh, around the league.
0: So you mentioned the uh, the, the origins of ESPN or, or at least when ESPN buys uh, NFL rights in 1987. So, and you talk about this in the book. What what is the role of ESPN in the in the rise of the NFL, or not the rise, but really the uh, NFL reaching its summit in the 90s and the 21st century, and, and what is the role of ESPN in sports in general in American culture? Well, you
1: know, you know if, if, you, if you think about fundamental differences
0: between sports
1: today and sports, you know, in my era, or sports for my kids versus sports when I was their age and growing up, um, you know, one what, what, what of the most succinct ways... To put this, as we've gone from the game of the week to you know sports 24/7, 365 days a year, you know it it still sort of boggles my mind and baffles me that there is so much interest in the NFL in the offseason. You know that the draft has become this huge, you know, media event. Uh, Can I jump? Can I jump in there? Actually,
0: something I wanted to ask you uh, is. How did you find out that you had been drafted by the chiefs because now you have you have this big spectacle at radio city music hall it's on two networks all all this production. How did you find out that you had been drafted
1: yeah well the the extent of my knowledge that anybody was well okay so by the time I was a senior at Notre dame um uh, people were talking about me as as somebody who might get drafted, and I can't remember who those people were. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have an agent or anything like that. The the, the night before the draft, uh, I got a phone call from somebody with the Kansas City Chiefs who said, um, "Are you six three or are you six <laughs> Because I was six three in the program. I was six three two twenty five in the. Oh wait. I was six three two fifteen in the program. In reality I was six five and a half and about two twenty five. So anyway, they clarified that I was six five. That was the first and only thing I heard from but from the Chiefs before the draft. And then after I was drafted, you know, within some reasonable small period of time, I can't remember whether it was an hour or whatever. Cause I don't know what was going on anywhere. It wasn't on television. I got a call and said, you've been drafted. I said, oh, great, thanks. You know, it, 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 was a, it was a rather casual affair. And I was in the fifth round. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't a first rounder or second rounder or anything like that. But, yeah, e- even the guys that went in those first rounds, I don't think, you know, were, you know, caught up in anything even close to what's going on today. But, but you know, but back to ESPN, you know, so... <clears throat> the 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 twenty four hour news cycle in sports and the three hundred sixty five day football season you know uh, all of that is is due to cable television in general but cable television in regard to sports is predominantly ESPN of course uh, you know Sports Center is is a is a phenomenon I, I you know I, I I write this I think in the book. And I'm kind of half joking, but I'm mostly serious. I say something to the effect that you know, when I was a kid, you know, kid boys, little boys might dream of playing in the NFL. I wonder if today they dream of watching themselves on SportsCenter playing in the NFL. I mean, the, the the you know, celebrity status that has you know, it's always a part of professional sports has just been accentuated enormously. Uh, you know, f- football is still a sport, but it's an entertainment. And, and, you know, the, the, I, I played in an era when, you know, if the cam, if you were aware of the cameras on the sidelines pointed at you, you, you looked away, uh, you know, you, 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 you didn't want to be distracted and you, you know, sort of pretended they didn't exist. You know, this the self-marketing of players, this awareness of guy by guys like Terrell Owens and Chad o- Ochocinco that, you know, the, that they they can market themselves as personalities and commodities through football that it gonna pay off for them. You know, all all of that is is a consequence of the, the increased media attention, which you know is primarily ESPN. Okay, so ESPN and the NFL. I think the NFL has been more important to ESPN than ESPN has been to the NFL. I think the NFL made ESPN what it is, you know and in the 1980s, early on, uh, you know it picked up the leftovers in, in the sport media world, um, you know the games that the major networks weren't broadcasting, and the sports that the major not. Uh, networks were not broadcasting when when they signed their first contract with the NFL in 1987 it was actually a kind of um, oh not shocking but slightly controversial event you know the NFL had to sort of Grit its teeth and agree to be partners with this mere cable TV station. You know, it was it was regarded in that kind of way. You know, whether the NFL was sort of you know lowering its standards by having games on ESPN was actually a part of the you know, part of the conversation around all of this. I mean, that that seems ridiculous now, but 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 at the time, you know, that's the way it was perceived uh, through its first contract with the NFL. The ESPN achieved full legitimacy, and it was the same thing when Rupert Murdoch uh, started the Fox Network. When when Murdoch, when Fox got its first NFL contract, it fully arrived as a as a network station to rival ABC, NBC, and CBS. Uh, you know, the NFL by this time had that kind of of uh, economic and social and cultural power. So. The NFL has really been crucial to the making of ESPN into the, yeah, you know, the media, sports media juggernaut that it is. But on the other hand, ESPN has greatly benefited the NFL. I mean, most simply what ESPN did and then Fox did, every time the NFL signed a new set of uh, television contract agreements, there were always more networks Uh, than there were packages. And so they had to bid against each other for an enormously desirable and, you know, limited, scarce commodity, these NFL packages. So somebody always got left out. NBC got left out for a couple years, you know, CBS, whatever. uh, and, and, And it just drove the bidding up. So ESPN was a part of that. Fox was a part of that later on, uh, but also too it was it's through ESPN, you know, above all other media outlets that then NFL football has become this this 365 day of the year phenomenon. Um you know it's it's ESPN that's broadcasting all this draft stuff. You know other other networks, cable networks, you know are beginning to pick up on it because they don't want to leave it at all to ESPN, but ESPN you know takes everything at once. And so the NFL would still be a really popular uh economically powerful entertainment business without ESPN, but ESPN has made Made it even more so many times over, but in terms of you know sort of ultimate um, impact or influence, uh, I think the NFL has meant more to ESPN than ESPN has meant to the NFL. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way.
0: So, in looking at uh, in the nineteen nineties, as as the NFL becomes this this powerful brand, one of the figures that you talk about during this period as as being uh, influential or important is a woman named Sarah Levinson. Can you talk about her and and what her role was in the in the NFL's uh branding?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Sarah Levinson is a kind of is a very interesting figure uh and and I I think she's pretty much disappeared from consciousness uh for most football fans and maybe didn't even register in the consciousness of football fans at the time but you know she became president of, of NFL properties I, I, I think president's the right term you know uh, but anyway she, she, she led NFL properties for several years and that in itself was was really interesting I mean here was a woman. You know, in this you know thoroughly you know male-dominated sport, you know, be, re- running the company that 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 really marketed it and branded it in a variety of ways. She also came with a background from MTV, where she'd been an executive, and you know, MTV. Uh, and you know, music videos and hip hop and all of that kind of business—you know—at the time, you know, seemed, you know, so fundamentally at odds with the ethos of professional football. You know, smash mouth, you know, big collisions and all that sort of thing. So, so, you know, w- within the world of of media and advertising and so on, this this was a really, you know, striking kind of startling choice on the part of the NFL, but. You know, it it seems pretty pretty clear that you know these things that seemed so strange and startling and so on were exactly why the NFL wanted Sarah Levinson to be to be marketing the league through NFL properties. Uh, They wanted to expand their audience uh, to include more and more women. They desperately want you know everybody wants that that. demographic group between 18 and 25 or 18 and 35 you know the, the the young people who are going to be lifelong consumers and uh hopefully fans and who have lots of disposable income i mean everybody targets them in their marketing strategies their advertising strategies and so on so you know in in effect you know melding MTV to NFL football and you know, bringing in more women uh, into the fan fan base and so on uh, is is a cu- are a couple of the key ways that the NFL has you know continued to expand. Uh, you know, the the NFL depends on, on its core of, of hardcore fans, you know, mostly males, you, you know, who would watch any game, any time, if at all possible, who are passionately uh, connected to their favorite teams and, and so on. But, but you know, that hardcore fan base is not enough to fuel the enormous economic engine entertainment business that the NFL has become. It also needs its, its casual fans as they say, and, and those include a whole lot of women. Uh, you know, most of the in-house marketing surveys that the NFL has conducted over the years and the, you know, the media surveys, uh, uh, you know, the reveal fan preferences and so on turns up that about 40% of the NFL fan base is female. Um, I, I, this is something that's really, really interesting to me. Somebody needs to write a book about, uh, women and and professional football. What is it that women like in the game, love in the game? Uh, You know, there's been a lot of silly things, you know, sort of tossed out about this, but but no serious uh, attempt to come to terms with it. Um, You know, my guess is that women and men like some of the same things, a lot of the same things in professional football, but also some different things you know do women respond to the violent collisions in, in the same way that men do i mean you know what 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 is it that appeals to women but anyway sarah levinson then pre, uh presided over nfl properties for something like five years in the late 90s early 20th century and uh, you know de- designed the marketing campaigns and, and all of that and and then she was you know more or less driven out it seemed from the outside looking back on this um you know, I, I think, as a woman, uh, she—you know—she had a hard time with, you know, the NFL male culture, and with, you know, the the clients, the male. The predominantly male clients that she had to deal with that that that's the sense you get anyway from leading reading the little bit of reporting about this i have i have no insight story on this i i was limited to to publish published sources on this but but it seemed that it was it was in fact a hard fit for a woman in this you know this predominantly male world of nfl football
0: so you raise that point of uh what draws people to watch the NFL, or what what attracts people to be fans of the NFL? And, and in your chapter where you talk about football as a product, on the final page of that chapter, you you write, and I'll, I'll quote the line: "Football makes little sense according to the rules we learn to live by in our modern world." And in reading that line, it seemed to me that you were you were one getting at what makes the NFL so popular. But at the same time, you were indicating there's something of a mystery as to what makes the NFL so popular. So could you elaborate on that
1: particular sentence? Excuse me. You know, in talking about it's making little sense, what I'm really referring to there is that, you know, the values that we celebrate in NFL football and, you know, the the kind of – you know male masculine heroism that we find in n f l football you know physical prowess you know predominantly i'm thinking here you know are really irrelevant today you know there there was a time when 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 physical prowess was was You know economically necessary for lots of careers but you know for a long time now uh, we have lived in a white-collar world and you know today more than ever you know in our information age uh, you know the the people with real economic clout are going to be the people that uh, you know, intellectually and creatively can, you know, can be innovators and so on, you know, so it, it, it's that, it's that, you know, emphasis on physical prowess that I'm talking about here that, that makes a little sense and withstanding pain and toughness and all those kinds of things that we, that we so admire in football and and value in football that really don't matter out there in, in, our work worlds and our social worlds and so on but that's precisely I think why football is so is so powerful why it appeals so much I, I I think you know here you know there's always a chance of of overstating and oversimplifying and, and getting kind of silly, but 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 I think football's power is is predominantly compensatory. It, it makes up for I think what's lacking in in, in our lives. And you know I'm, I'm I'm not inventing this idea. You know I, I've seen this in commentary, you know say on professional football and think 1950s and, you know, back to commentary when college football was first emerging in the 1880s, 1890s, you know, early 1900s. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's the the raw physicality and almost primitive uh, uh, physicality of football. It's the intensity of, of the games, you know, and those violent collisions and withstanding those violent collisions and so on that, that somehow, uh, you know, taps something deep inside us, you know, harking back to, you know, to, you know, ancestral times and so on, you know, and, and it, which is so missing from from modern life, uh, and because it's missing, you know, there there is this this longing to connect to it in some way. You know, it's it's really the intensity of of experience that that football provides. You know, even vicariously for fans watching it, that is so different from you know our our workday experiences and you know our. You know the the sort of day to dailiness of, of of our lives that I think put football really compensates for and accounts for its its popularity. You know the the, the violence is is a key part of it. Uh, and you know and this is something that that we're all having to grapple with right now. I mean when when the brain trauma stuff started coming out, um, all of a sudden the the risks of playing football were. Elevated enormously in, in, in our consciousness. You know, it's it's one thing to think about former players hobbling around on damaged knees and having hip replacements and so on. It's altogether different to imagine former players. You know, walking around in a fog. You know, n- unable to comprehend where they are. Um, you know, I'm i just chilled. You know, just haunted by things I read about. You know, say John Mackey. You know, who's who, who's you know been in a in a fog. You know, for the last several years. This this great player from from my era and so on. Um, I, actually, and that
0: re- I actually wanted to ask you about that because when you finished the book, or the most recent edition, when you were writing and. In- in May 2010, your second afterward, the, the last paragraph, you bring up this increasing evidence of brain injuries in football players. And since then, of course, we've had uh, the death of Dave D'Orson, which brought even greater attention to this problem. And, and I wanted to ask, how serious do you think this is as an issue for, for the NFL and for the game of football?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really serious issue. And, uh, you know, the criticism of, of Roger Goodell, uh, about either doing too much or too little, uh, you know, with, you know, finding players for head to helmet to helmet hits and so on, I, I you know, I, I find misguided. I mean, he, he's got to do something and he's trying to do the things he, that can be done. You know, right now we're in a situation where, unfortunately, we don't know just the extent of the risk you know we don't know you know the percentages of players that that develop these 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 serious problems in later life um and we we, you know we we don't know how risky it is to let our kids play tackle football when they're 12 and 14 and 16 years old and so on but we're beginning to accumulate evidence that there are that these risks are real and the consequences of the risk are as I say are just horrific they're just horrifying I mean you know to think of myself you know as you know in, in a, a mental fog you know at some point down the road because of having played football 40 years before I mean that that's just chilling you know you think of my kids you know who played football as, you know dealing with these these brain trauma issues later on I mean it, it, it's just really chilling I mean so this has to be addressed and and you know this this brings up then the whole role of violence in football and and how necessary is it to the appeal of football i 've read some things that just appalled me in commentaries you know Rick Tellander, for example. Um, you know, sports columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times is very concerned about this issue, and he's written about former teammates, you know, and and uh, he's written about Dave Doris and, and all of that. And, and you know, he posts these things online, and then there's comments from, from readers online, and, you know, some of these comments are on the order of, you know, get over it, you know. What, what do you want to do? you want to put him in a dress, you know? You know, what, what, what are you, some kind of sissy? You know, the, the, these guys know what the risks are, you know. There are American gladiators, you know. And I'm going. Wait a minute. Do you really mean that? You know. You know. Are you really comfortable with the idea that football might be a gladiatorial sport? You know, where young men destroy themselves for the entertainment and pleasure of, of of the rest of us. I mean, you know, that that's an appalling idea. I mean, that you know, if if that's the sort of civilization we are, oh my God, right? So I I can't quite believe that that fans are indifferent to the the consequences of this kind of violence the the, the thing that the uh, the question that fascinates me and because i don't have an answer is just how necessary the violence is and how much violence is necessary to the appeal of the game i don't believe that that football is popular because it's violent i think it's that tension we talked about earlier between the 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 violence and the beauty that say NFL films captures so wonderfully that is really the heart of it. You know, it's 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 that unbelievably graceful receiver going up and catching the ball and being slammed to the turf and hanging on to the ball. And both the grace and the and the the ability to withstand that that hit and 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 the hit itself can have a kind of aesthetic appeal uh you know the the the, the body flying you know in in a arc you know to the player and so on i mean you, you you're something visually exciting you know beyond the the simple violence but the violence is a part of it and so the question in my mind is You know, can football be made safe enough and still be football? You know, I don't think you can take the... I know you can't take the collisions out of football. I think you can take the the head collisions out of football. I don't think you have to have, you know, people, uh, you know, leading with their heads, you know, and, 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 you know, the sort of extreme violence that results from that to, to get the charge that, that, that football provides. You know, I, I've been thinking about that. You know, when I played football as a kid, we, we were taught to block with our shoulders yeah, through, with, with your through head on the side. Yeah yeah and then and then when i got to college it was you know stick stick your face mask in the guys numbers all mm-hmm. right so uh, you know and, and then we've gotten accustomed to that and and as the helmets have gotten technologically more advanced and those those face masks that completely protect you i mean pe- some people have, have suggested the possibility remove the face mask, and all of a sudden you will make the game safer because people are not going to put their face in there you know if it, if it's you know splattered all over their their own if their noses are going splattered all over their faces um, but 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 we're at a state right now of uncertainty um, Like I say, I don't believe that that football's appeal lies entirely in the violence, but I think that the collisions are absolutely essential to it. And whether the game can be made safe enough for the players and and still be the kind of football that fans love – that's the big question for the day, you know, and it's a question for the NFL and the NFL is doing what it has to do. It's funding the research that's, that's discovering CTE, you know, uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy in the brains of former players like Dave Durson. you know, it's, it's finding players for helmet to helmet contact. It's uh, you know, trying to uh, improve coaching techniques, you know, youth league, football and all that sort of business uh you, you know the the money in the NFL is is so great that there will there will be players you know willing to take the risks to to earn it but what happens if you know not letting your kid play tackle football in in grade school and middle school becomes as sensible as strapping him into a car seat when he's an infant or a toddler. Uh, If that happens, then the only people playing football will be those who don't have the advantages and opportunities of alternative ways of becoming economically successful and so on, and football will become more like boxing. you know, I don't think we want that. I don't think the NFL wants that. I don't think that would be good for anybody. But but we're right now at a place where th- there's a whole lot of questions without absolutely clear answers about this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, we're just about out of time, and, and picking up with that, I want to ask you about your uh, the afterword you wrote for the 2010 edition of this book. And you, you end the book really on a pessimistic note, not only in terms of this question of, of brain trauma, violence in the sport, but also uh, the specter of uh, more labor problems, and uh, so I'm wondering: Do you think has the NFL reached its highest point? Could it could it maybe have even reached a saturation point, and now we're going to be looking at the decline of the NFL?
1: You, you know, that's a possibility, but I don't think it, it, it's the likeliest possibility. It, you know, when when I finished the book in. Um, I think it was 2007. Um, You know, I ended it on a note of, of, you know, here I was talking about, you know, the marketing of NFL football and the branding of NFL football, and and, you know, pushing against the idea that it was that it was, you know, simply a brand like any other entertainment brand, you know. you know the risks that the players took were real the things they accomplished were real you know there's no special effects like in movies and so on and that you know football the the thriving of the National Football League was less dependent on the skill of its marketing than on the, the deeper appeal of the game to fans it, you know if fans ever you know didn't like and need and and, and desire you know the kind of, of excitement charge, psychic charge the football provided you know then no amount of marketing would would uh, would matter but in, in in coming out in writing that afterward for the paperback edition that came out three years later, in the meantime, you know all of this stuff about you know brain injuries and head trauma and so on had come out, and all of a sudden it it seemed to me that uh, that that the issues had shifted and the, the future of the NFL now uh, is going to be, you know, p- primarily shaped by how this issue that we're currently facing over, you know, the the physical risks, the mental risks of football, h- how how those are resolved. And I I guess I wouldn't say that I'm more pessimistic. It's just that this is a much deeper and greater uncertainty. I mean, there's no question in my mind that there's a huge fan base out there that still wants NFL football. And, and as I write in that afterwards, the, you know, the, the things that what's bizarre to me is that there are these two crises facing the National Football League, but one of them is entirely self-imposed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, this labor dispute seems to me just so nonsensical on so many terms. And, you know, then the owners have the ability to end this tomorrow. I, you know, like I said earlier in our conversation, I just can't quite fathom why they would put the game at risk. But presumably that gets resolved. This other thing, you know, is beyond the nfl's power to resolve entirely uh that they got to do what they can do to make the game safer um and for their own sake they need to make it safer in a way that doesn't you know take away the appeal of the game i think that's possible but but um but, but but I don't know how it's going to play out. You know, I, the, the older I get, I supposedly get smarter. But actually what happens is I become aware of how much I don't know. And, you know, predicting the future is increasingly difficult. You know, the more I know, the more uh, uncertain things become. So I, I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic, but I really do think that, that football in general and NFL in particular are at a at at a moment right now where there's a huge issue to be addressed uh, about the safety of the game um, that will determine its future. And and I just frankly don't know how that's gonna play
0: out. So my last question, Michael, is what are you working on now?
1: Um, Strangely enough, I I, I was approached by a, a documentary filmmaker a few months ago who said he'd be interested in making a movie. You know based uh, a cultural history of football based on the stuff that he was reading in my book so mm-hmm. i'm i 'm working with him on that you know and it's it 's uncertain at this point you know small independent filmmaker trying to raise money, but we 're conducting interviews and all that sort of thing and then the other thing i 'm doing i you know I, I think has less potential appeal to a to a, the audience that could be interested in booking nFL football i 'm really interested in how how football has been uh, represented, you know, in art and film and so on. I, I'm just fascinated with visual representations. Uh, and so I'm kind of playing around with that. Um, you know, it, th- th- this is kind of more academic stuff in a way. I mean, I, I think it has a broader appeal, but I don't really know. But I'm at a point in my career, you know, I'm 63 years old, I'm, you know, sort of winding down my academic career, I have the freedom to, you know, pursue things that just interest me and then see, see what I've got when I'm done with them. And so right now I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, early paintings and visual representations of of football and looking at old football movies and, you know, see what I can make of them.
0: Oh, that sounds fun. Well, I, I really enjoyed brand NFL. And as I said earlier, I've read, read some of your earlier work on uh, football and cultural Mm -hmm. history and, and I highly recommend it. This was a, this was really a rich, rich book. And we, uh, in an hour, we barely scratched the surface of some of the issues. I wanted to talk about football and race, football and masculinity. And uh, so it's, it's really an impressive book in terms of touching on how many aspects of American uh, society and culture football, football touches on. So thank you for joining me on New Books in Sports.
1: Thank you, Bruce. I really, really enjoyed it and appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Michael Oriard about his book, Brand NFL making and selling America's favorite sport published by the university of North Carolina press. New books and sports is part of the new books network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. You can find podcasts on new books in art and religion, food, and politics. If you like what you heard here, please visit the Facebook page for new books and sports where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.